Tēnā koutou koutou. I think when I was um, first invited to participate in this series, I was asked, could I give the first, the first of them back in February or March? And I said, could, I, could we make it the last? And that wasn't just procrastination, because I saw that it was a few days after the first National Day of Commemoration, so I thought it would be an appropriate time to um, reflect on this history. Um, I wanted to start by briefly talking about how I became a historian and how I came to write this book, because it relates to some of the key themes in the work. So I grew up in a big working-class Irish Catholic family in Christchurch, and um, my standing joke is I started in the history department at Canterbury at the age of 15, which is true, but I, I wasn't a child protege, I was a cleaner there. And it was, that was quite a good way to find out who were the nice lecturers, the ones who, who treated their cleaners with decency and kindness. And um, fortunately, New Zealand history ones were quite good. But at school, um, I had a really good history teacher, but he was of the view that nothing of interest had ever happened in New Zealand. It was boring, move on. He ref flat out refused to teach us anything about New Zealand. So all we learnt was European history, the Russian Revolution, the English Civil War, and so on, which was great, I loved it. Um, and so when I went to university this time as a student, naturally I just enrolled in a bunch of European history courses because that was all that I knew. And it was only after a few weeks when I was, decided to drop out of economics because I thought they're still teaching the same ceteris paribus nonsense. Um, and I was looking for a filler in the student magazine rated New Zealand history as a good filler course. So I did that. I thought, oh, well, it was probably boring, but you know, they say it's okay. So I did that and I was blown away and I, I hadn't looked back. And so the idea that nothing of interest had ever happened in New Zealand history couldn't be further for the tr from the truth. And I was also fortunate to um, go to university at a time in the mid to late 1980s when um, you could still just study what you had a passion for, not, some, not as some kind of vocational plan. So I just went to university and studied history because that was my great love and my great passion. And then um, a, few, a couple of years later after that, I got offered a, um, a three-month job in Wellington researching treaty claims, and that was um, January 1993, so I'm still here 24 years later, um, pretty much doing the same thing. And, and that's how I came to write The, um, the Great Wolf in New Zealand. Um, 2006, I was commissioned to write a couple of reports for the Waitangi Tribunal for its uh, Rohe Potai or King Country inquiry. Um, and I finished those in 2008. And um, people do, do, do um, joke quite a lot about the size of my book. And, and I, I agree, you shouldn't drop it on your foot. That would be a very bad thing to do. But by comparison with these reports, it's quite short. Because one, one of the reports was 900 pages long, the other was 600, I think. And these were looking at the, the background to the Waikato War, its course and its consequences, including tracking, confiscation, the compensation court, and so on. And at the time that I started that, there was kind of a, an assumption that this had all been done before. Hadn't Balich written about this? We didn't need to know anything more about it. And when I started researching it, um, I thought, it, well, again, it couldn't be further from the truth. I, I learned so much that was new and vital and interesting about this history um, that um, it seemed that people hadn't looked at before. Um, and one of the things I think about the treaty claims process is that it's basically iwi talking to the Crown, talking to the government. And other New Zealanders aren't part of that conversation. And often they have no idea of the history behind the claims. And I think that's um, often because they weren't taught it at schools. Um, and so that's why I spend what little spare time I've got um, converting a lot of the, the research that I do through the claims process um, into books or blogs or, or whatever kind of format it takes in order to um, share this history w with a wider audience. Because um, I think as, as a nation we need to know and we need to understand this history and that's, that's the key theme of my book. And we launched the book just over um, a year ago at um, the Wahi Pokai in Huntley. Um, and it was a great honour and a privilege to be invited to launch the book um, in this way and to give the first official copy to King Tuhatia. 
and really it was only right and proper that, that we do this and we share the book with Tainui before we took it out to the wider world. Um, but something really interesting happened um, immediately after the formal part of proceedings. I, I, I wandered back to the, the back of the whare where um, people were setting up with copies of the book and so on. And there was a sort of crowd gathered there and I wondered what they were there for. And um, they were there to buy copies of the book before I'd even walked from the from the from the pie pie round to the back um, where they were setting up to sell books. Uh, there was a huge crew, uh, crowd there, um, and um, so for the next three or four hours, I was busy um, signing copies of books. And uh, many of those who were getting copies were kuia, and they often asked me to dedicate it to their mokapuna um, so that they would never forget this history. And so it was huge. It was a huge. Um, hugely uh, emotional and moving day, and Charlotte was there busily unpacking boxes of books. Um, we, we could barely keep up with the demand. Um, and and um, my, my family were there as well, and um, I, I write in the acknowledgements that a big, it, was a, it was a big deal for my father-in-law. I was researching his whakapapa and as I was writing the book and, and discovered that he was um, uh, tainui, and so it was, it was a big deal for him to be there. Um, excuse me, my father-in-law father Ian died two days ago and I was going to cancel today's talk but um, I know it would have meant a lot for him for me to be here to talk about this so, excuse me. Um, I'll just take a so, the, the day after the pokai, we had a, a public event at, at Waikato Museum and I had the pleasure of uh, presenting copies of the book to Waimarama Anderson Lear Bell and the other students and former students from Otterhonga College had been responsible for organising a successful day, um, successful petition that led to the National Day of Commemoration for the New Zealand Wars. It was really um, a great honour to be able to acknowledge their efforts in this way. And I think when you've got young people who are pleading to be taught the history of, of the wars fought here, you know it's time that it, us older New Zealanders maybe listened and paid heed to what they're saying. And I think we might even learn something from them. And I think um, these rangatahi have a very clear vision of the kind of country that they want to grow up in. And it's one that doesn't run from its own past, but openly confronts it and acknowledges it. So I salute the effort of these young people. Um, a couple of weeks after that, we had a, a big public event at Te Papa, um, a Wellington launch for the book. Um, and Jim Bolger was amongst the speakers, and it was, um, he's been a great champion for the work, and it's really wonderful to have Jim uh, speaking in support of some of the key messages from this book about the need to own this history, because he's not really the target demographic for this work. He's a, you know, an old National Party um, cow cocky from the King Country. And so for somebody like him to be, to be talking about the need to engage with this history has been, um, been really incredibly important. We also had um, Rahui Papa there, who's been another great champion for the book, and to Uruai Flavel, um, who um, was instrumental in uh, getting the, the National Day of Commemoration established as well. Um, and then um, a few weeks after that, we were going to have an Auckland launch, but then Mihina uh, Rangi Forbes and Hui got hold of this and said, could we make it a TV programme? So that sort of changed the dynamics a bit. But So here's Mihi uh, talking to Tom Roa. A, a wonderful Tainui historian, a man of great humility, and um, he again, he's been um, a wonderful supporter of the work. And I've, I've spoken at public gatherings many times over the last year alongside Tom about some of the messages um, in the work. So we had an awesome night at the, the museum that night, and um, 
part of it was the Kapahaka group from Western Springs College, um, I think it was the Wairea um, Immersion Unit, and they performed Homaitara, Give Us a Day, which had been composed especially as part of this campaign for a National Day of Commemoration for the New Zealand Wars. And I think this image is just one of such incredible strength and beauty. So um, this, is, this is taken during, those, um, uh, during that evening. And since the Auckland um, Museum event, uh, just about a year ago, I've been speaking all over the country about this um, as, far south as, as, far, as far south as Wanaka. And I spent um, the first Maumahara uh, at the Tauranga Arts Festival on Saturday. Uh, Wuti Ihimara and Hemi Kelly and others were speaking there, talking about their work on Arako. Um, so that's a bit of a, um, a potted history of the, of the book. But what about some of the messages within it? Um, well, one of the one of my big arguments is that this isn't just a Tainui book or a work of Māori history. The Waikato was something that all New Zealanders should know something about because it had a profound influence on New Zealand as a whole. And it's not a small regional story, but one of national and I'd argue even international significance given the huge number of British troops who were here at the time. And a key theme of the book is just how dependent um, the settlers, um, especially in Auckland, were on Tainui in the pre-war period through the 1840s and 1850s to feed them, to build their homes, um, and to, to defend them from other potentially hostile iwi. And in 1845, the government even built a cottage for Te Whiro Whiro, pretty much where um, Auckland Museum now stands. Um, and that was, um, so during the Northern War, um, Te Whiro Whiro personally pledged to defend the settlers of Auckland um, from attack. And he declared that Auckland was, was um, the hem of his cloak, which brought it under his personal tapu. And there could have been no greater guarantee for the safety of Auckland than, than um, Te Whiro Whiro's statement. And in building the cottage, the government was acknowledging um, just how reliant the settlers were on Tainui um, and other iwi in so many different ways. And I think this history of the, the, the utter complete dependence of Pākehā in this country on Māori in, these early, in this early period is not really widely known and understood. And I, you know, I hope that's one thing that people, that people take from the book. And you know, the Waikato War itself is nine months long, but I'd argue that to understand the significance of the war, we also need to know what came before and afterwards. And that's why the book traverses sort of two centuries of history. The subtitle is 1800 to 2000. So it, it um, covers a period pretty much from first contacts with Europeans in the Waikato district in the early 19th century through to the Tainui uh, settlement um, in 1995 and beyond. And I think framing the war in this way allows us to better appreciate what was at stake. And the enormous contribution that Tainui and other iwi um, made during the 1840s and 50s, it, it, it's forgotten today, but it was widely acknowledged at the time. I think in about 1845, Southern Cross newspaper said that um, Europeans in New Zealand would have been quite literally starved out of the country were it not for the produce that's brought to them each week, um, the produce brought to them each week by Māori. Um, and it wasn't just Te Whiro who had pledged to defend the settlers of Auckland. Hundreds of Tainui people moved to Mangere and elsewhere on the outskirts of Auckland to protect the settlers. Um, and essentially they were recruited as military settlers. Um, and so, you know, the origins of, um, of that, um, that settlement there comes through this period and through that relationship forged with the settlers. But as Pākehā grew in numbers and strength through the 1850s, the relationship changes and even Great Rangatira report being abused in the streets of Auckland. Um, and those settlers, of course, also, also have their eyes on, on the rich natural grasslands of Waikato. 
And this is at a time uh, in the mid-1850s when the New Zealand economy is starting to, to shift from agriculture, from growing crops, towards pastoralism. And you have these very rich natural grasslands 40 miles from downtown Auckland. Um, and so through this period, the dynamics are changing and you, you have a war um, essentially for the future of New Zealand that, that lies ahead. And I'd argue that at the heart of this conflict were two competing visions of the country, what it was and what it could be. On the one hand, a Māori one that's premised on mutual prosperity and mutual partnership. On the other hand, Pākehā expectations of unbridled power and racial dominance. So really the stakes couldn't have been any higher. This, this was a battle of war for the future of New Zealand. And of course the treaty had been signed in 1840, but contrary to popular myth, um, nothing much had changed on the ground over much of the country after that. So iwi like Tainui continued to manage their own affairs pretty much as they always had. What the treaty did do is introduce a new player to the scene in the form of the Crown and it also signals um, the start of a period of mass migration to New Zealand and that, that changes the dynamic, dynamics as well. So by the end of the 1850s, Māori find their, themselves outnumbered in their own country for the first time and many of those new settlers um, weren't willing to play second fiddle to a bunch of natives. So the seeds of disharmony are there from the start really, um, especially as Māori are determined to assert their rangatiratanga and settlers demand self-rule and unimpeded access to Māori lands. And so in 1852 you get a new constitution granted um, that gives settlers self-rule and they get a parliament, the forerunner to today's parliament. But that effectively excludes Māori from participation um, because of a property qualification that's based on European forms of land tenure. And this is at a time when Māori land, nearly all of it, is still held under native or customary title. So they don't have a, a piece of paper saying you are the legal owner of this land. And so you have a settler government established that's overwhelmingly hostile to Māori interests. Um, but the, the British Parliament at the time it passed the constitution assumed that it had adequate safeguards in that because it passed section 71 that allowed for native districts to be declared. And what that would have done essentially is um, legalise the de facto position in many districts where Māori were self-governing. Well, this would have said you have a legal right to do that. And um, so, um, and that power remained um, on the books. Ironically, until 1986, Geoffrey Palmer got rid of it when he was cleaning up New Zealand's constitution. So, um, you know, Tuhoi could have um, applied for Section 71 had the treaty settlement been, you know, 25 years earlier. Would have had quite a strong case, I think. Um, so one of the ways in which Māori um, respond to these um, challenges in this period um, is to look for, for new ways to unite as Māori. Because this, this is kind of a new idea, thinking of themselves as Māori rather than iwi, hapu, etc. And the kiritanga, of course, is one of, um, one of the most important responses. Um, and Wurimu Tamihara, you know, a wonderful New Zealander that we should all know more about, he described the kiritanga, rather he described Queen Victoria as a fence for us all, Māori and Pākehā. And he denied that the, the kingitanga was a challenge to the Crown's authority. Um, where, they had, where leaders of the kingitanga had an issue is with the settler parliament set up in Auckland that's overwhelmingly hostile to their interests. But throughout this period, and even after the Waikato War, the, the kingitanga maintain a real sense of devotion to the person of the Crown, Queen Victoria, which is why they travel to England in, in search of justice and believe that Queen Victoria will deliver that to them. Um, but nevertheless, the idea that the Kingitanga can't be allowed to stand becomes official crown policy, and that paves the way for the invasion, as Monty rightly said, of Waikato in July 1863. And the war that follows has really devastating consequences for those on the receiving end of British bullets. 
1865, Wadamu Tamihana wrote that when it came to the time of the murder at Rangiafia, then I knew for the first time that this was a great war for New Zealand. And of course, from Wadamu Tamihana's statement comes the title of my book. And, you know, it's quite, I find it, still quite, find it quite remarkable that this is the first book-length overview of the Waikato War published since 1879. I mean, since then there have been monographs on things like the role of steamers in the war of the Great South Road and so on, but there hadn't been kind of an overview of this conflict, um, which given the profound influence that it had on the shape and course of New Zealand history, um, is remarkable. And it seems we've really gone out of our way to forget these wars, and here I say I use we in, the, in talking about Pākehā New Zealanders. So Wunamu Tamihana's statement sums up the central um, argument in the book which is that the defining conflict in New Zealand history didn't take place at Gallipoli, didn't take place on the Western Front um, or in North Africa. Instead, it happened right here, and it is a history that many Pākehā preferred to ignore over the years. Um, well, of course, Tainui and other iwi have never been allowed to forget this history. And so it's time, I think, as a nation that we do remember this. This is a, a key theme of the book. And so a, a, maturation, a mature nation takes ownership of its history, and it doesn't just cherry-pick out the good stuff that it likes from its, but from its past, but also it acknowledges the bad stuff as well. And the Waikato War does feature some of the darkest episodes in New Zealand history. It was a deliberate war of conquest started by the Crown, um, which relied on fabricated evidence of a supposed Kingitanga threat to Europeans. Um, and it saw a professional standing army belonging to the world's sole superpower at the time unleashed on a civilian population that's hugely outnumbered um, and didn't have the same firepower and technology that's available to the British. So the British, the British have armour-plated steamers and Māori have wooden canoes. This is what Tainui and other iwi are, are up against. And really, you know, this should have been no contest. And of course, under the circumstances, Tainui um, and their supporters suffer horrendous casualty rates. And I argue in my book that these were probably higher on a per capita basis than those suffered by New Zealand troops during World War I which is supposed to be the great bloodbath of New Zealand history. Um, and those killed included women and children, some who were the clear victims of atrocities. At Rangiafia, people were deliberately torched to death inside their whare, and at Arako, um, a cavalry was unleashed against the occupants of the pa um, as they sought to flee for their lives on foot, um, so they'd been hunted down by, by, by men on horses. And more, more than half of the occupants of Arako were killed, including documented cases of female prisoners um, who were bayoneted by the troops. And Europeans later um, attempt to depict the war as one marked by mutual chivalry and bravery. But there was nothing noble and glorious about any of this. And I'd argue that it's time that we as a nation confront that fact, acknowledge that fact, and confront the reality of what actually took place rather than this mythical kind of story of the war. And this might be really uncomfortable history for some people, but I think it's a truth that Pākehā can no longer run from. And owning our past does require guts and maturity. You know, I've never suggested that it would be an easy thing to do. But I think it's an essential step in the development of the nation. And I also say in the book in the introduction that if we look closely enough, we might even find a few uplifting aspects to the story, which is otherwise an extremely grim one. And one, I'd suggest, is the principled idealism and biocultural vision of Wudumu Tamihana. Another would be Rewi Maniapoto's insistence on fighting fairly and honourably, even when under horrendous attack. I mean, Rewi was, was a man who was much maligned by settlers. The, uh, Balich called him the colonialist's favourite bargain, but the case against him doesn't stack up really at all. Um, and thirdly, um, 
I'd point to the sheer bravery of those few Pākehā who spoke out against the injustice of the war at a time. And this is at a time when most settlers were baying for Māori blood. So I think it took real courage and conviction on their, on their part to, to condemn what was happening um, at that time. And I think Pākehā, who lack an awareness of the history of this country, also lack the means to fully understand the present. And Māori poverty today, for example, makes little understanding without understanding this historical context. And so some people resort to deficit theories that blame Māori themselves for their predicament. In reality, as I've documented at length in the book, the war destroyed a flourishing Māori economy. You know, through the 1840s and 1850s, Māori are the lead drivers of the New Zealand economy. New Zealand's export income is coming overwhelmingly from Māori. The, the Crown's revenue is coming overwhelmingly from Māori. They're at the centre of the New Zealand economy. And that is, that is destroyed almost literally overnight. You have sweeping and indiscriminate land confiscations that push generations of Tainui people into landlessness and poverty. Um, and the Waikato War also marks a point at which the treaty is essentially thrown out the window for the next century or more. And that's felt in multiple ways as well, including um, the establishment of the Native Land Court a couple of years later, and two years after that, um, the Native School System, which is designed to further the, assimilationist, the Crown's assimilationist agenda. So it's no coincidence that these follow almost immediately after the Waikato War because the, the dynamics have shifted in the country and the Crown finally feels in a strong enough to position to be able to do these things that it, that, that it had long wished to do. And I'd argue that those effects can still be felt in multiple ways today, including um, the, the dire socioeconomic statistics for Māori as a whole, or even in the peerless state of te reo Māori. And yet for all of Governor Gray and General Cameron's efforts, the Kingitanga wasn't destroyed in the Waikato War, and I think that's really important. Um, while we acknowledge the pain and suffering of the war, we should also um, remember that um, mere survival and endurance under these circumstances was quite a remarkable feat. Um, and I think it was Paul Diamond who said to me when I was talking about this recently that um, he kind of read my book as a survival narrative, and I think that's quite an astute kind of way of looking at it, because... Um, when you look at the odds that Tainui were faced with, they were staggering, they were overwhelming, but somehow the Kingitanga is still here today, and um, that's something that we should, we should celebrate. But the book also um, seeks to finally set to rest some old myths, um, and I talk about Governor Gray's dodgy dossier of evidence that he used to justify the invasion in 1863, when he argued that Tainui were intent on um, attacking the settlement of Auckland and massacring the residents there. Um, and that, that argument is still parroted by some anti-treatyists today seeking to stir up hatred and division. Um, the book shows that that, that supposed plot um, was a total fabrication that's used to justify a premeditated war of conquest and invasion. Why would Tainui destroy the, the market for their produce? Why would they do that? And Rewi Manipoto, the supposed ringleader of this invasion, um, was in Taupo at the time that the war broke out, which was probably the wrong location if you're, you're planning an imminent invasion of the settlement of Auckland. Um, so that case doesn't stack up at all. And after the war, Wudamu Tamihana makes um, repeated pleas for an independent inquiry into who'd been um, responsible for the war. And from one of those comes the title of the book, one of his petitions where he refers to the Great War for New Zealand. But of course the government knew that any truly independent inquiry would reveal the truth of what happened, so... Um, his, his repeated requests were, were um, denied. The truth about what really happened had to be, had to be hidden, it had to be suppressed. And so Wurrimi Tamihana um, died a few years after the war, um, really I think of a broken heart. He was a broken man, um, having seen what had unfolded. Um, 
but you know, we I think we can no longer hide from the truth about about this war and and the role of Governor Gray, in particular, um, in launching the invasion. Um, so one obvious question about the book is what what is new, um, and didn't balance say at all before. Well. Um, one of the things is, as I said before, this is this is the first book-length overview since 1979. So Balch's work covers the war in the space of a few chapters under the broader rubric of the New Zealand wars as a whole, and that's been the usual kind of approach. Um, and there, so there are a lot of things that are left out um, in, in some of these works. Um, and while I agree with most of Jamie's assessments, there are a few areas where um, I probably beg to differ, and one is casualty rates, which I think were significantly higher. Um, and, you know, so the, com the conflict had devastating impacts for those on the receiving ends of British, bullet British bullets. And Balich, Cowan, etc., um, they don't really look at the socioeconomic impacts of the war. That wasn't their focus. And, and that's a big part of my book. Um, and how, for example, the, the population of the King Country doubled overnight after April 1864 um, as survivors of the conflict retreated south of the Punu River. Um, and so there are frequent outbreaks of disease and illness that are caused by crowded and unsanitary living conditions. Um, so imagine if the population of New Zealand doubled overnight and the enormous strains that would be placed on our country. This is what happens to Ngāti Maniapoto when they bring in their relatives and, and, um, and provide refuge for them after the war. And another new area um, that I've looked at is um, how the war has been remembered and forgotten over time. So not just what took place, but how, how has it figured in our imaginations. And so this is where I discovered this, this wonderful field of memory studies, which is really interesting. Um, and if I have time, I'll come back and talk a bit about that, because I think it's a, quite a fascinating topic. So without dialogue, there can, there can be no reconciliation. So the purpose of my book is to, to contribute to this conversation that we need to have as New Zealanders about the wars fought on our own shores. And the purpose of remembering them isn't to so discord or division, but actually to bind us together as a nation that can honestly confront its own past. And that's not about assigning blame, it's just about taking ownership of our history. I'd argue that moving confidently into the future requires a robust understanding of where we've come from and been. And you know, we commemorate World War I on a huge scale because it provides really opportunities to rally around the flag. And politicians love nothing better than to go to Gallipoli each year and to be seen there. Um, the Waikato War and indeed the other New Zealand wars offer cold comfort for those seeking reassuring tales of patriotism. And some have argued that it's best, it's best forgotten and we should let sleeping dogs lie. Well, I'd beg to differ. I, th I think these are stories that need to be told and they, they need to be heard if we're to move together as a, na move together as a nation. And the Waitangi Tribunal said, um, while only one side remembers the suffering of the past, dialogue will always be difficult. One side commences the dialogue with anger and the other side has no idea why. Reconciliation cannot be achieved by this means. And so I think it's time for New Zealand to learn about this history that Tainui and other iwi have carried for so many generations. And it's vital that New Zealanders are in touch with their own history. And that's why the Waikato War um, and the, the wider New Zealand wars should be taught to all school children. I, I think we could debate the practicalities of how that might take place. But for me, the principle is just common sense. In fact, our kids are pleading to be taught this stuff, and it just seems to be the Ministry of Education who, who are, are adamantly opposed to it for reasons that I do not understand or comprehend. And secondly, I think we could be doing a whole lot more to protect and promote the actual battle sites. Some are in a pretty disgraceful condition. And this was um, Meri Meri when I went there in 2015. Um, so this is you know, a site of immense historic... 
technically this is on the land adjacent to it, but this is the site from the top of Meri Meri Pa. So, you know, I think we, you know, these are, these are basic things. We protect the sites, teach the history to our kids, um, make more information and resources available to all people, not just kids as well, because a lot of adults don't know this history because they weren't taught of it in schools. These aren't, these aren't huge asks. They don't require tens of billions of dollars. They just require a basic commitment to recognising the importance of this history. This is our story, it's our history. And actually it happened here in this place relatively recently in historical terms. Um, and it had profound consequences for what New Zealand was and what it would become. And I think while it's a history that many Pākehā New Zealanders had preferred to ignore until now, um, the response to my book and, and indeed to the Otterhong College petition gives me some hope that we might be entering a new phase. And maybe after a long period of neglect, Pākehā New Zealanders, or at least some of them, might at last be ready to again remember the wars fought here. And that's a welcome development and not really, not before time. Understanding and awareness of the shared and tragic history is essential if we're to move together into the future as a confident and united nation. So I'll, I'll just very briefly talk about um, how the wars have been remembered and forgotten over time. When, it, when I started on this, I'd assumed that we'd always forgotten these wars. And then I look back, what happened at Araka in 1914, the 50th anniversary? There's a huge crowd there, 5,000 people. Um, there were special trains laid on from Auckland, all of the local schools are closed and so on. Um, dignitaries and so on are there to mark this conflict. And um, there's a, um, a monument that's unveiled there in 1914, and there it is today. Um, and so th this is a huge event, and newspapers um, throughout the, the Dominion um, comment on the Oraco celebrations, and, and that's what this is for Pākehā New Zealand. The New Zealand Herald reports at the time that Oraco marked the final acceptance of the British mana by a heroic and warlike native people, and this, it argued, had been met by just and generous reciprocity, which is everywhere regarded as an example to the civilised world. And you can see this in the... Oh, here's a couple of the veterans shaking hands. You can see some of this in the, um, the, the souvenir programme, um, which talks about 50 years of peace. And there are people who pointed out at the time that the wars hadn't actually finished in um, 1864, and the idea that, that that peace reigned from 1872 is contestable anyway. But they were, they were really swimming against the tide, so 50 years of peace it was, at least according to this view. Um, but this, really this was no ordinary peace. And I, I'd argue that it was Araku that gave birth to the myth of New Zealand as having the best race relations in the world. Um, and there's this whole kind of process of cultural appropriation going on as well, with Pākehā talking about the stories of Rewe's last stand and saying that this is part of their history. Um, so you have a highly sentimentalised version of Araku openly appropriated by Pākehā for their own nationalist and nation-building nation ends. So these, this, these are kind of pre-Gallipoli foundational narratives for the nation. Um, and later, um, later on, uh, as, as the First World War draws to a close, there comes a renewed interest in the wars fought here, partly because many of the last um, uh, veterans of these are passing away, and there's, there's a desire to capture their stories before it's too late. So James Cowan is commissioned by the government in 1918 to do this. Um, originally as a four-volume series, he ends up writing a two-volume series, um, and his books are published in 1922-23 um, to critical acclaim, um, and they're seen as the definitive history of, the definitive history of these wars for decades thereafter. Um, of course, 
they're, they're heavily narrative in approach and they're full of gripping yarns of heroism and bravery. So it's kind of reinforcing this mythical idea of the wars as marked by mutual chivalry and bravery. Um, and, and Cowan talks about the mutual respect of former adversaries forced through ordeal by battle. So there's some real mythmaking going on through this period. And um, Riddle Hayward's um, movies, his 1925 uh, silent movie, which has turned into a talkie in 1940, this is a poster for that, that becomes part of the um, um, school um, film library. So lots of kids would have grown up watching this, and this is kind of reinforcing um, this, this kind of version of things. So for many Pākehā through much of the 20th century, the Waikato War is a vital, important and, remem and remembered, um, even if as a form of myth reconstituted as history. So that was one thing I, I, didn't, I wasn't aware that this, this was kind of a, a really important thing. Um, and you get that through, even through the 1960s you get that as well. And um, when I gave a talk about this a few years ago, somebody pointed out that the the Rangiriri program in 1963, it's got this word tuakana uh, on it, and intended to mean brotherhood, um, but really reinforcing the notion of seniority. And, and I don't know if you can see the images there closely enough, but on both the battlefield in 63 and the rugby field in, in 1963, a century later, the Pākehā is getting the better of his Māori adversary. So this is probably an inadvertent um, reinforcing of that message that we won and you lost. And it's, so it's a really insensitive thing. And through much of this period, in, in 1914, the crowd that's gathered there, there are 5,000 people, but they're mostly Pākehā. Māori aren't there to celebrate Araku. It's not something that they celebrate. It's where many of their ancestors were killed, and, and many of them the clear victims of atrocities. In 1914, um, the Māori king is actually on his way to England to seek um, justice from his treaty partner, um, the British monarch, and to request an independent inquiry into who'd conducted the war. Um, so I'll just flick through here. So by the 1970s, that, that kind of mythical idea of the war can no longer really be sustained. And I'd argue instead we get a kind of uncomfortable silence about what happened. And when people do speak out in ways that are considered um, to, to, to breach that, um, there's a real backlash. And one of them happens in 1977 when the six-part series The Governor is filmed on New Zealand TV. And I think to this day it's still the most expensive one-off drama series in New Zealand history. It cost about... Um, over $1 million at the time. Um, but there was a really strong backlash against the message of that because this portrayed Governor Gray as um, um, a very scheming and unethical man. Um, so probably probably quite astute in that respect. But um, Muldoon for, was, one, was one person who argued um, against us. James Belch, um, of course, when his book came out in 1986, to critical acclaim, it was regarded as a tour de force, but... When the um, TV series followed in 1998, this was like completely new to most New Zealanders, and there was a very strong backlash against that, and some quite funny um, letters to editors of newspapers, that, which I don't have time to read out now. But again, this is kind of like every time anybody argue, you know, tries to tell the, the, the true unvarnished story of this war, um, they're shot down, and there's a strong, there's a strong backlash. Um, so 2014, well, one of the things here was um, in, in the 150th anniversary of these wars, the crowds were overwhelmingly Māori, so it was a complete reversal of what happened in 1913, 1914. Um, and they emphasised that it's not their intention to demonise those who fought on the Crown side, but actually um, to acknowledge all of the victims um, 
of the wars, and, and that's um, that's yes, yeah, really significant. Um, and so, you know, the, the conversation that we need to have about these conflicts continues on today. And here's the, of course, the monument um, at Otahu uh, to Colonel Marmaduke Nixon, who was gravely wounded in the attack on Rangiafia in 1864. Um, and so, you know, this is, this, these are stories that we need, we need to talk about and we, we, we need to have conversations about this history because it's, it's all around us. Um, many people have been oblivious to this history over the years. Um, but it's time that we acknowledge this. And so here's um, Ram Omahara um, on Saturday um, and the unveiling of wreaths at St John's Church in Te Aumutu on the first National Day of Commemoration for the New Zealand Wars. Um, and there's a story behind the monument here dedicated to um, the Māori heroes because when it was put up in the early 20th century, it was assumed that um, the, the unmarked graves of Māori there were um, loyalists had fought for the fought on the crown side, but in fact they fought against the crown. So um, the government it was too late to change the inscription, the engraving on the monument. So the, in the early 20th century, that the crown puts up this monument, um, paying tribute to those who fought against the crown. Um, so I'm sorry, I'll finish here. I've just rattled through the second half of this um, in a fairly unplanned way. 